Welcome back, friends and fellow readers. This week, we continue our ongoing conversation about Educated, Tara Westover's memoir about growing up in rural Idaho, never going to school, and then, through grit and chance and tenacity, making her way to BYU and from there to the University of Cambridge. Professor Johanna Winant from the English Department here at WVU is in the studio today to help us think about the transformative role reading played in that journey. We'll talk about interpretation, that eminently transferable skill, and literature, and probably a few other things as well, because talking is fun. Before we get to that conversation, though, I want to tell a story, or maybe two, about the hunger that we have for books, especially for stories. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to a group of honor students here at WVU. They were lamenting the fact that they no longer have time to read. They used to read. In middle and high school, apparently, they read constantly. They told me about The Warriors, a series of novels about competing clans of cats that live in the forest. There are seven sub-series, and each sub-series has six books in it. So that's a lot of pages, and they'd read all of them. And not just fantasy novels. One student talked about pulling a random history of the Holocaust off the shelf in her school library and devouring it. She remembered the look and the feel of the pages. It's sad that they don't have the time to do that kind of reading, and who does, really? But I'm more struck by the hunger, the hunger for knowledge and for stories and for language. Is that a story? I don't know. I have to be honest, I'm a terrible storyteller. Let me try again. I have a five-year-old daughter. She loves books, and I love reading to her. This past winter, we read Charlotte's Web, and then we read it again, and then we read it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. We must have read Charlotte's Web 20 times at least. She made a home in the pages of that book, and I did too. I think it must have helped her process in her tiny, inchoate, four-year-old way the changes she was experiencing. Because the hunger for books is a hunger for that, too, for reflection. When a book's good, it goes straight to the subconscious, doesn't it? And the two get right to work together. Jeff, you're such a poet. (laughs) Well, hold on. I haven't introduced you yet, so let me do that. Johanna Winant is an assistant professor of English. She writes about transatlantic modernism, 20th century American literature, and the intersection of literature and philosophy. She has a PhD from the University of Chicago and an MPhil from the University of Cambridge. She's also a brilliant teacher, and her work in the classroom has been recognized here at WVU by Sigma Tau Delta, which awarded her its annual Outstanding Teaching Award in 2018. What am I forgetting, Professor? She's also stunningly beautiful. Are you going to tell them that we're married? Funny. <laughs> we're also married. <laughs> so I've invited Professor Wine in, in here, uh, as I said, to, to help us think about the, uh, Tara Westover's relationship to books and to reading. And so let's start with a passage in which Westover talks about uh, reading and interpretation. This one comes from her adolescence, so it's still several years before she's gotten any formal education at all. She writes, I read the Book of Mormon twice. I read the New Testament, once quickly, then a second time, more slowly, pausing to make notes, to cross-reference, and even to write short essays on doctrines like faith and sacrifice. No one read the essays. I wrote them for myself, the way I imagined Tyler had studied for himself 
and himself only. And Tyler, I should say, is her older brother, who at this point in the book has uh, himself gone off to BYU. I worked through the Old Testament next. Then I read Dad's books, which were mostly compilations of the speeches, letters, and journals of the early Mormon prophets. Their language was of the 19th century, stiff, winding, but exact. And at first I understood nothing. But over time my eyes and ears adjusted, so that I began to feel at home with those fragments of my people's history, stories of pioneers, my ancestors striking out across the American wilderness. While the stories were vivid, the lectures were abstract, treatises on obscure philosophical subjects, and it was to these abstractions that I devoted most of my study. In retrospect, I see that this was my education, the one that would matter, the hours I spent sitting at a borrowed desk, struggling to parse narrow strands of Mormon doctrine in mimicry of a brother who deserted me. The skill I was learning was a crucial one, the patience to read things I could not yet understand. So maybe you can just kind of explain what she's doing here. Sure. So in a literature classroom, when we're studying a text, a professor will often tell students to close read a poem or a passage of a longer book. And what we mean by that is to pay a lot of attention to details and then to link the details together, to uh, form an argument about how it hangs together. So that's what I think she's doing here, is that when she's talking about the skill of reading, that's something she did not yet understand, but working her way through it in order to be able to then write an essay about it, uh, she's thinking about uh, interpretation. And I'll just say that close reading is what literature professors like me call this uh, process of interpretation. But um, in philosophy, you would call it inductive reasoning, using particulars to form a, a more general statement. In um, medicine, you would call it the process of diagnosis, looking at symptoms to come to an uh, understanding about like the overall cause, the thing that links them all together. Um, in science, you might call it a hypothesis based on empirical research, where you're looking at an experiment uh, or other data, and again, coming to a sort of sense of how, wh why all these things are connected, how they're all connected. Um, in forensics, you might be looking, you know, I don't know that much about the forensics uh, actual sort of study, so I admit I'm thinking kind of about Sherlock Holmes here, <laughs> but, you know, you would think about, like, different little pieces of evidence and be like, oh, well, what happened here? Like, what, how do these pieces of evidence hang together? So, like, we call that close reading when we do it with a text. Um, and what I want to say about it is that, uh, as you can see from my examples from lots of different fields, it's something we all do. It's like a basic process of logical reasoning. Um, Jeff mentioned our now five-year-old daughter and, like, She's doing it all the time. Like, why did this happen yesterday and will it happen today? Our uh, one-year-old son also, you know, drops things and says like, uh-oh, and then drops them again. And he's sort of piecing together um, how different events are connected. Like, what do they all share a cause? So the first thing I want to say about close reading is it's like it's what literature calls this interpretive process, which is extremely widespread. And it's also extremely powerful hmm. that it tells us a lot about how the world works. 
So she is here tapping into um, a skill, and she's doing it through reading, through the study of literature. Um, but it's a skill that I think is like one of the most fundamental skills we need to operate both like in our daily lives and as critical thinkers in more abstract ways. And that's that's pretty fascinating and and crazy too. I mean, I just really hadn't thought about English uh, as as sort of being related to these very different fields in in the through the process of interpretation. And I'm imagining a, a course like a team taught course in the English department and in. Uh, and in forensics. That My dream course. Get in touch with me, forensics professors. <laughs> we'll read lots of Sherlock Holmes. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you said the ways in which literature is, or English class is like, that literature is like these other fields and that English, the, the skills in English class are, that, that you're learning in English class are applicable in fields as diverse as medicine and, and forensics. Um What's different? Why study literature? So she's she's studying. I I I would say a kind of literature here. These um, speeches and stories uh, from the nineteenth century. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few different answers to that question. One is I think that literature is a great place to learn these skills because you don't need a whole lab or even a huge amount of knowledge. Like I think these are. Um, skills that uh, literature really trains you to do well. Um, so that's sort of like one like very pragmatic answer for like mm -hmm. why literature for these skills. Um, the other answer is like not at all pragmatic, which is that literature is really beautiful and really fun. And we have a limited amount of time in this world. And uh, we should do the things that enrich our souls. Mm -hmm. as well as the things that are pragmatic. Um, well, that's so, a very noble sentiment. Well, I, I don't know that it's noble, but you see her sort of doing both of those things in the, that passage, I think. You see her practicing a skill with like a very pragmatic goal of getting out of her um, home environment and off to college. Like, you know, she's very like directed and clear about that being what she wants, and she's trying to figure out how to do it. But then you also see her awakening to something else that's helping her make not just sort of the next strategic move, but make more meaning in her life. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, and I, I'm struck. I, I love this passage. Uh, and, and one of the things I love about it is that, uh, one, she talks about how difficult reading is. And I think often we think about reading as something that's easy because we can read words and know superficially what they mean. Uh, but often the things that are worth reading are more challenging than that. And so it's this sort of wonderful portrait of a reader who's having to read things over and over and who has the, I don't know if it's even confidence as much as sort of just a kind of doggedness and maybe a faith that those texts will yield things to her um, through those through those rereadings. You know, she says, the skill I was learning was a crucial one, the patience to read things I could not yet understand. I talk a lot about this in my classrooms as well. Um, about patience. About patience, about going slow. Mm -hmm. That uh, a lot of times we think about um, reading as like, how quickly can you get it done? How fast can you move through a book? 
whether it's because, you know, who has the time for it, as you were saying, or it's an assignment or whatever, but that if you think about um, the interpretive process, like detectives don't run through a crime scene mm-hmm. to return to forensics, um, right? Or like you don't like glance at your petri dishes in the lab. Um, and that like also literature rewards patients. So one of my favorite things to do in the classroom is to spend a whole class period, you know, an hour or so on the William Carlos Williams poem, The Red Wheelbarrow, which is like, 14 words, I do, think. Do you know it? Can you recite it for us? Oh, gosh. You probably know it as well as I do, Jeff. But it's, um, so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And I'll put that on the board and say, we're going to spend all day talking about this. And they look at me like I'm joking. And I'm like, oh, I'm not joking. <laughs> we could spend all semester we talking We could about spend this. all semester talking about <laughs> this. And One word each week. Well, and one of the things that I, I say, one of the first things I say is, tell me about these words. And they're like, what do you mean? They're words. And I'm like, tell me about them. And we start having this like really great conversation at some point as soon as they let themselves slow down and start just the first step of interpretation, which is usually just describing it, like what's happening here. Uh, and, and then um, one of the things I often ask them is, tell me which word doesn't belong. And they'll look at me like, what do you mean? All the words belong. <laughs> and then, like, honestly, within 30 seconds, someone says, the word glazed doesn't belong. It's not like the other words. Mm. And I'm like, that's right. Yeah. Like, this is actually, like, there's a right answer here. Yeah. Um, and then we talk about that. This is not a podcast about William Carlos Williams, so I'll leave it there. <laughs> but uh, William Carlos Williams stay, fan, stay tuned. fans. Next year. <laughs> come chat with me. Um, well, you use the, the phrase close reading. Does anybody ever talk about slow reading? Is that something that people have theorized? Ooh, maybe. I'm not sure. I know that there's kind of a hip literary conversation in uh, sort of theoretical, literary theoretical circles among professors about distant reading. Hmm. Um, whether that's, uh, I mean, it tends to be sort of via digital humanities mm-hmm. and computers sort of doing the vast amounts of reading of um, often more obscure texts and sort of picking things out, patterns that we might not be able to see through close reading alone. But I am a uh, forever close reader. A slow close yeah, reader. 100%. Um, well, speaking of that, let's, let's get a little more of the book out there. Um, so I want to jump ahead about a couple hundred pages to when she's at the University of Cambridge, and she returns to this theme of reading and of books. And she describes the process of learning a new way to read. And it's a, it's a wonderful passage, so I want to go ahead and read it. So she says, From my father, I had learned that books were to be either adored or exiled. Books that were of God, books written by the Mormon prophets or the founding fathers, were not to be studied so much as cherished, like a thing perfect in itself. I had been taught to read the words of men like Madison as a cast into which I ought to pour the plaster of my own mind to be reshaped according to the contours of their faultless model. I read them to learn what to think, not how to think for myself. Books that were not of God were banished. They were a danger, powerful and irresistible in their cunning. To write my essay, because just to bracket here, she's describing the process by which she's writing an essay for her 
what are they called at Cambridge? Tutor. Her tutor about the Federalist Papers by uh, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. To write my essay, I had to read books differently without giving myself over to either fear or adoration because Burke, Edmund Burke, had defended the British monarchy. Dad would have said he was an agent of tyranny. He wouldn't have wanted the book in the house. There was a thrill in trusting myself to read the words. I felt a similar thrill in reading Madison, Hamilton, and Jay, especially on those occasions when I discarded their conclusions in favor of Burke's. There were wonderful suppositions embedded in this method of reading, that books are not tricks and that I was not feeble. Isn't that great? I love that. I love books are not tricks and I was not feeble. That we, that we honor books by engaging with them. Um, and that we also honor ourselves mm-hmm. by engaging with them. Mm-hmm. And having a critical distance. Yeah. So I'll just uh, say that um, the reason I jumped in identifying her Cambridge tutor is that I did my master's at Cambridge. And the system at Oxford and Cambridge is not um, seminars in classrooms, much less... Uh, uh, well, there are lectures, but they're a little different. Um, but you also meet in weekly tutorials with a tutor, which are like independent studies. And, um, or sometimes there are two or three people in the room. Um, and uh, you have to generally write an essay of like six to 10 pages per session. My, my tutor <laughs> made me read mine out loud and stopped me every sentence or two to ask me, why did you use that word? Or... Could you say that previous sentence using half as many words? Or what is this paragraph even about? <laughs> so it was excellent for my writing and terrible for my uh, confidence for a while until I, until I actually learned to use fewer words and to be able to justify every one that I used. Um, well, I, I think you, you talked about power and empowerment earlier, and, and she uses the word feeble. So she too seems to be, you, you can feel her gaining strength as she, you know, it, it goes farther and farther away from her home, both physically um, and, and mentally and emotionally. And, and, and I think that's a, a wonderful thing about this passage. I'm also, and this is something I wanted to talk about with the previous passage, too, and I'm very curious about your reaction to this. Um, in both cases, her family, her personal life is still very wrapped up in her reading. Mm-hmm. Earlier, it was about her brother, she had learned this process from her brother who had left her, and it was a way of sort of continuing to commune with him in some some sense. Here, it's a process of rejecting her father, that her father's approach to books had been something that she has to to reject, but he's still very much in the room as she reads these books. So the thing about interpretation and close reading, and books for that matter, is that there is this tremendous possibility, an opening for a person to develop and defend their own point of view. Like when I said earlier about the red wheelbarrow, like there's a right answer. The word glazed is different than the other words. It's different in its etymology than the other words in the poem. It's um, Latinate and not Anglo-Saxon, Germanic in origin. Uh, But also it comes from the world of fine arts and not the world of farming, which has to do with its etymology also. But um, like all of that is true. The, the letters in it are different, uh, the sounds. But if someone said, oh no, I have an argument for why it belongs, 
I would be like, hit me with it. <laughs> you know, I'd be like so excited to hear that argument. So, so the thing about looking at the evidence for yourself, if you're a scientist, or looking at the words uh, on the page for yourself as a reader, is that you get to decide for yourself how they hang together. Uh, you get to decide for yourself what the meaning there is that's uh, there to be made by you and only by you. Um, my students are often worried and also like other professors, like my peers too, uh, sometimes me, are often worried that we'll um, inadvertently echo an argument that's already been made about a text. That, um, that there are like a limited number of arguments we made and that the one that we see there, that we, the, the, the way that we see a text hanging together, the meaning that it makes, like surely must be obvious to everyone else also. And the fact is, like, that's just not true. People are still making new arguments about Homer and Shakespeare, uh, the text we've been living with for hundreds or thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that you make your own argument is by getting close enough to it. Um, that if you're speaking in sort of generalizations, like Hamlet is sad, you know, then, yeah, people have said that. But if you're actually going to like focus in on even a single word, um, that's something I had to do with a student as a student and, some, and something that I sometimes make my students do is write about a single word in this. Quintessence. <laughs> that, um, then you'll come up with something that no one else has ever said because no one else is you mm -hmm. and is going to see how things hang together the way you do. Well, well maybe we can do that briefly yeah, so with Jeff, this book. Jeff, <laughs> I, I, keep, I keep hearing about close reading and I want to know what that's like. Well, first of all, Jeff knows what it's like. Uh, he is um, an excellent reader, writer, and teacher. But um, sure, I'll, I, will give you, I will give you a question now. I'll ask you a question or give you an assignment. Um, Jeff, will you help me close read the title of this book? The well, I guess you did warn us that even individual words mattered. Just one word. Tell me some mm -hmm. things you notice about it. Tell me, Describe it for me. Okay. Well, first of all, I see that it's educated. And then right under that, it says a memoir. And so I wonder if educated, a memoir is the title or just educated. Right. And those are sort of different kinds of uh, interpretations already. And I think one of the things I'm reacting to is that typically with books like this, there is a subtitle. Uh, so it will be, The Girl Who Smiled Beads, colon, A Story of War and Its Aftermath. Mm -hmm. um, here we don't get a subtitle. We just get educated. Um, so it's, it's a little different than a lot of books that uh, are in the same genre. It's also like maddeningly vague. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like who's being educated? What are they being educated about? Mm -hmm. and, and what is education? Absolutely. So one thing that um, I would ask is what do you think education means to Tara Westover? Because if I said just, you know, in a casual conversation, like, what do you think education means? Someone would say, or what do you think being educated means? Someone would probably say like, oh, going to school mm -hmm. and getting diplomas. Mm -hmm. And she certainly has Credentialing. Gone, right. And she's... Um, gone to school and gone diplomas. But do you think that's what she means by it? Well, I, I certainly think it's about knowledge. 
um, because she goes to college and she gets all of this knowledge about the world that had been withheld from her, and that's very powerful. Um, but I don't think knowledge is is sort of the end. Not, it's more like knowledge is a means to something else. And so if her, if her education only consisted of gaining knowledge, um, that would be incomplete. And obviously, if we think about the passages we just looked at, um, she's very her education is very much about skill. Yes, in that first passage, you said she's you read she says something like i see now that this was my education right learning to having the patience to read things that i didn't yet understand and i think that's what we learn over the course of the books is that applies to texts right to, to the kinds of texts that she's reading in that mm-hmm. in in that instance but also to situations and and even to her own life i was about to say and even to herself right that mm-hmm. she's coming to understand herself yeah and what she's capable of um, what has happened to her, how what has happened to her in the past is relevant mm-hmm. to her present and, and how it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so, which is the yeah. same process of interpretation and close reading. Like she's close reading her own life mm-hmm. in this book. I think if I were to title the book... That was my next question. <laughs> oh, okay. What's an alternative title for this book? It'd be something about like you know, down with the patriarchy or against the <laughs> patriarchy or maybe something even stronger than that. <laughs> Tell me um, why. Well, partly because I one of my frustrations with this book is that it it never sort of came out and, 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 and said that it was against the patriarchy. But to me, it felt so much about that and the way that she grew up in a, in a, a very patriarchal environment. And what do you mean by patriarchal? Do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a, it's a, um, she, she grows up in a. It's a very male a, environment. Well, and not just and, that, but a family that reproduces a kind of society in which um, men have more power and like structural, structurally have more power and authority, right? Yes. Uh, men have more power and authority and women are sort of made subordinate consequently. Mm-hmm. To men in lots of different ways, and so her choices in life, uh, her very way of being in the world, is sort of circumscribed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's defined by her father and her brother. She can only be a whore or a saint. So then for we, can, we can see how reading and just learning to trust herself—that she was not feeble, mm-hmm. right? Like that's mm-hmm. a tremendous source of her own authority. Mm-hmm. And, of course, authority shares the same root as, like, author. So we can see that writing her own book is also a claim for her, her own authority. Yeah. One thing, <laughs> one thing I'll just say about also close reading that you touched on, but I want to make more, um, sort of bring out a little bit, is that when we're looking at a text or any kind of, you know, evidence or data, we're looking for both what's there and what's missing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, what should be here but isn't? What is here but doesn't fit or, right? Like, so there's lots of different things to look for. It's not just um, how do we make these things that are here all go together. We can, we can think about it with, with greater nuance than that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes students will be like, well, but I, you, know, you mentioned the title being vague. And sometimes students will be like, I don't know. It, you know this detail could be read in any number of ways. And I'm like, that's great. Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't thwart interpretation. That's where interpretation begins with the thing that doesn't quite fit or the thing that's missing or the thing that's vague or ambiguous because um, then start to think about like why that's the case. 
that gets you most of the way there. Uh, if everything sort of just like fits together really neatly, it's just not as interesting. There's not as much to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I I want to thank you for coming into the studio today. I really appreciate you giving us our uh, giving us your time and helping us think about educated. Oh, this is really fun. Thanks for having me. See you at home. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savon Hunter. Copyright 2019.